Now, let's go to the word uh, to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of gathering together. And Father, even though I only know a few people in this congregation that as brothers and sisters in Christ, we are still a part of the same family. That we come by confidence and reliance upon Christ alone. Father, we thank You for Your Word, that in Your Word You speak to us, You guide us, You comfort us. And so, Lord, I pray that as we come to Your Word today, that You might grant me the ability to speak Your Word clearly, not to make complex and hard to understand things that Your Word makes simple. And I pray, Lord, as Your Word is open, that the people here might have hearts that are receptive, that I might hear, that they might learn, that they may understand, but Father, that with their understanding that You might change things about their lives. And so Father, we pray uh, today that Your will would be done, that You would be honored and glorified, that Your saints would be comforted, and that anyone here who does not know You might see that today grace is offered to them if they would but repent and trust in Christ. In Your name we pray. Amen. Well, in the ninth century, Rome, the Roman Empire, suffered what many historians would call the single greatest military disaster in Roman history. And if you know just a little bit about Roman history, that would be significant. Because Rome lasted a really long time. They expanded a great ways, and they had tons of military battles. And this particular battle in the ninth century was called the Battle of Teutoburg forest or the Varian disaster. And it was named after the Roman commander who led his troops named Varus. And Varus was a very notable individual. He was a great military leader. But in this particular case, he led his troops into a devastating situation. A number of years before this particular battle, uh, the Roman Empire had expanded into a, a location, a place called uh, Germania. And one of the people who lived in that land was a guy named Arminius. And Arminius was actually sent to Rome as tribute to the emperor. And so Arminius was this person of Germanic descent. He goes in Rome. He's born and raised there. And he becomes Roman. He's a Roman citizen. He eats like a Roman. He talks like a Roman. He learns like a Roman. He, he was able to get the best military education of his day. So he learned what were Roman tactics, what things worked, where they were weak, what their responses would be. And because Arminius was there for so long, he actually began to develop such trust and confidence that he became a great confidant of this Roman commander named Verus. But what Varus did not know is that for some time, Arminius had been speaking to a number of Germanic tribes, bringing them together, formulating a secret alliance to lead an ambush against the Roman military. And so he knew his time was right. A lot of the legions in this particular area were moved from one part of the world to the next. So there were three legions that were left with their auxiliaries, their supporting forces. And so what's interesting during this time is that Arminius gets into the ear of this Roman commander and he fabricates this big story. They were leaving their summer camp. And he says, uh, these local places are rebelling. We've got to squash the rebellion immediately or disaster is going to come and it's going to become an even more significant issue. And so what Varus does is he takes this lie. 
He formulates troops. And because he thought it was so urgent, he actually went a different, a different route than he normally would, a route that was less well-known. And guess who's at the charge of leading that route? Arminius. He was taking them down the route. So the night before that they are led into an ambush, Varus is warned by one of his close confidants about Arminius, that he seeks your harm, that he's leading us to the ruin. He's been talking to Germanic peoples. And what do you think Varus does? He disregards the warning. He didn't see the imminent danger. And so they depart and they were ambushed. And almost everybody destroyed. It was such a significant military disaster that the three legions, two of them, never banded again and the third one eventually dissolved. Tons and tons of people died. And what this particular illustration highlights is the responsibility and the importance of leadership. Leadership comes with great responsibility. You have to make decisions, but you're always to be making decisions for the benefit of those under your leadership. Always. And so we understand that, do we not, in the normal world? You could say the sphere of home, leadership matters. Sphere of work, leadership matters. In a country, the political system, leadership matters. But another realm in which leadership matters a great deal is the local church. The Lord, if you remember in Matthew 28, called the Great Commission, says we're to make converts of all nations, baptizing them, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that Christ commanded. But when you read the book of Acts, the Great Commission is being accomplished through local churches. And what you find very early on in the history of the church is that God found it very important to not leave local churches unto themselves but to instead provide leadership. But the significance of church leadership, or the leadership in this church, or the church of which I'm privileged to be a part, is that the consequences are spiritual and eternal in nature. So it heightens the importance of what kinds of leaders lead churches. And so this morning I'm going to be speaking to you on the topic of loving Leadership. If leadership possesses a great responsibility, if leadership is responsible for the care of those under them, what should that leadership really look like? It's an important question for us all to ask. What kind of leadership should you want and expect at this particular congregation or at the church at which I'm a part of? I would ask that you turn to 1 Peter 5 with me for our text this morning. 1 Peter chapter 5. Steve asked me a number of months ago, if I would be a part of filling in for him today, and he said, would you welcome me in a series that I'm doing? Um, And just be able to be a part of that particular series on church leadership. And so it's a privilege, and it's been an encouragement to me to be in the Word and spending so much time reminding myself of what I'm called to do. The other pastors at my church are called to do uh, not only the difficulties and the sobriety of the charge, but also the hope that comes with it as well. And so it is a privilege to be here this morning, and I'm thankful to be able to open God's Word with you. I want to provide uh, briefly the, the background to the book of First Peter. There was great persecution going on. If you open up in chapter 1 and you read, very quickly you learn that this was a church that was suffering. And it was addressed to many churches over a wide range of locations. 
They're suffering for the name of Christ. Many people believe it was the result of uh, when Rome was burned down that Nero makes the Christians a scapegoat. And whether it was that or some other general persecution, it's very clear that these people are suffering. They're living with life and death issues, difficulty. They knew what it was like to be reviled, to be mocked. They knew what it was like to be cut off from their community and looked down upon. They knew what it was like to be abused for the name of Christ. To see perhaps maybe a mom or a dad, a child or a parent, physically harmed for the sake of Christ. This church is in need of encouragement. They are in need of guidance. And that's exactly what Peter is going to do. And in our context, he's going to specifically address church leadership. Who would have been responsible in these areas for the spiritual care of the church? He feels that it is particularly important, among all the other things that he addresses, to make sure he speaks a personal word to the leadership of the church during this particular time. Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 5, and we're only looking at the first four verses this morning. The Apostle Peter writes, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but rather eagerly. Not domineering or overlording those in your charge, but be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. This morning I am going to provide you four things, truths, if you will, to consider pertaining to church leadership. Four truths. I'm going to state them first so you have an idea of where I'm going. And then we're just going to work through each one of them as Apostle Peter has laid out. We're going to consider the presence of elders and leaders in a church. Also, we're going to consider the task. What is it that church leadership is to do? What are they responsible to do? And by the way, that has great implication because you should be asking yourself, what is my expectation of church leadership? Because it's not always the same as what the Bible's expectation of church leadership is. Thirdly, we're going to consider the motives of elders or leaders. What is it that should drive them to want to lead? And lastly, we're going to consider the reward pertaining to leadership as well. If I was to summarize today, I would say this, that we're going to see that the Apostle Peter encourages the leadership of local churches called elders in this passage to lovingly lead the people entrusted to their care as they anticipate the reward that will come at Christ's unveiling. That's what we're talking about this morning. So let's consider the first point. Number one, consider the presence of elders. Look back at chapter 5, verse 1 again. He says, I exhort the elders among you. In the New Testament, you have an office, a distinct office of leadership called Elders, or it's referred to as eldership. And it's a distinct responsibility of a local church's leadership or elders to assume the care of the spiritual guidance of that church. They are responsible primarily for the spiritual care. And if you have read through the New Testament, you, you may realize that there are a number of terms that are used to describe this same leadership office or function. 
Here, in verse 1, they're called elders. As the Greek was what the New Testament was written in. Here it's pres, uh, it's where we get the word presbyter. A little later, you're going to see a noun form that's used elsewhere. It's called uh, episkopos or episcopal. Also, you see a, a term like pastor, sometimes translated shepherd in something like Ephesians 4.11. But there are a number of terms that the writers of the New Testament use to describe this position of leadership, whether it's elder or presbyter or overseer. And the terms are used interchangeably. You see it used interchangeably even in our own text. You'll see it used interchangeably in Acts 20. You see it used interchangeably in Titus 1. Here, Peter uses the term elder, presbyter. And so what is interesting, turn over to chapter 1, verse 1. This is where Peter identifies the audience of, of this letter. This is what he says. Verse 1 of chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ too, these are the people he's writing this to, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. What's interesting is that this particular letter wasn't written to only one particular local area, for example, the church at Ephesus. It's written to a number of churches and probably by this time over a wide range of people, you, you could be talking hundreds or even thousands of local congregations. But what is interesting to note is that even though this letter was written roughly 30 or so years after the time of Jesus, he assumes the presence of elders in the congregation. He takes it for granted as a fact that they have leaders in these local churches that fulfill this responsibility of spiritual oversight. And what you also will note here is that eldership uh, uh, is not said in the singular. I exhort the elder among you. Do you see that? What does it say? Elders, plural. What you find is that in the New Testament, as you're working through it, if you were to look up all kind of references to overseer or presbyter or pastor, what you almost always find is that they're referred to in the plural. That means more than one. And so, for example, when Paul sees impending danger in Acts 20, he calls not the elder of Ephesus, but rather the elders of Ephesus. And so you see in God's great design for local churches is that you are to have a group of men who serve as responsible parties for the spiritual care and guidance of the church. And that is what Peter takes for granted here in chapter 5. He understands their responsibility, their role in the church, and that's where he's gonna, why he's going to address them in the way that he does. It is distinct from another very important role called deacons. And you can see that distinction. Uh, for example, Philippians 1.1, Paul addresses not only the deacons or not only the elders, he addresses the elders and the deacons. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, when the Apostle Paul is explaining what kind of character traits and abilities that leadership should have, he speaks to the elders, but then he speaks distinctly to another classification called deacons. They are both vitally important for the health of the church. Elders are responsible for the spiritual care and guidance and protection of the church, and deacons look out to the physical care and needs of the church. And they are both extremely important for the well-being and health of any particular church. And so you see intended in what Peter takes for granted is that there's a plurality of shepherds, leaders, 
in these churches that are responsible for the spiritual guidance of the people. Some of these elders may be paid, some not. The Apostle Paul says those pastors who work hard at preaching and teaching, he refers to those who make their living, uh, their, their livelihood as the gospel should make their living by the gospel. But at our church, we have, we have a number of elders. One isn't more important than another. We're all considered pastors at our church. And so some work a secular job and serve the church, and then some of us that are elders are compensated by the church because we're set aside to do that. And you no doubt had that the first century as well. But look at what Peter says. Before, and I appreciate this because I think it shows sensitivity, before he launches into his specific exhortation, he identifies himself by, by three things. He identifies himself as a fellow elder. He identifies with these suffering people. He is not speaking down upon them. He's not giving them the bottom line and speaking matter-of-factly. He is speaking as one who is familiar with the responsibilities of this particular call. So you think about this. Um, I, I was hearing a story recently where a particular lady, a godly lady, was talking to a young person about some of the difficulties of motherhood. And because the, the younger girl said, hey, how are things going? They said, well, these are ways you can be praying. And they were talking about the difficulties of motherhood, some of the challenges, talks about the blessings and the privileges of it, but also talking about some of the struggles that, that they face. And the young person just looked at this mother and said, let me tell you what you really need to do. And this mother, of course, graciously, a humble older lady, uh, graciously received what the younger person was saying. But that's not what you have Peter doing here. It's always encouraging when you're in a line of work or you have a particular responsibility that when one speaks to you, they know where you're coming from. They come with a sympathy, a sensitivity. Would you all agree with that? Sure. And that is how Peter comes. I come as one well aware of this particular task, this sober-minded requirement of the task, the difficulties, the obstacles, the temptations, and also the blessings as well. But look at his second designation. What does he say? He says, I come as a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Remember what we said just a moment ago, that this was a church that was what? Suffering. And so Peter just further identifies. He doesn't simply come here right now and say, I'm a witness of the resurrection, as you often see in Acts. But to people who were suffering, to elders who were suffering, Peter speaks to them as one who is witness to the greatest suffering, that which was Christ, and he has shared in that as well, just as they are. But you also see a word of encouragement and hope here, do you not? That last designation, what does he say? I'm a partaker or sharer of the glory that is to be revealed. Not that might be revealed, but is to be. So Peter understands that this role of leadership in the way in which he knows it here and now, it is temporary in the way that it will be experienced on this earth because one day Christ will come and He will come in glory. And so you see here in verse 1 that to the suffering church, the Apostle Peter addresses the presence of elders who have a very serious, high calling to lead the church and to care for them spiritually. But secondly, an important question is this. What then is the task of an elder? What is the task of a pastor or overseer? Peter is going to give this in the beginning of verse 2. And this is what in essence he's going to say. Because the exhortation now comes in verse 2. 
He says, shepherd the flock of God. Shepherd. If you were to have asked me, Ben, if there is a summary of what you view as a responsibility of a leader in a church, I would probably always say first, shepherding. Shepherding. And you're going to see that we shepherd by exercising oversight. And so this is what I want you to think about. When you're reading the Scripture, I often am asking, with something so significant, an exhortation to leaders who are in responsibility of the care of the congregation when they are suffering, when you know the difficulties you are going to experience, when he knows the difficulties they will, of all the things that he could say, this is what he says to them. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight. I think the imagery the imagery of shepherd and sheep is so fitting in the Bible, is it not, to describe the role of leadership and guidance? Remember Jacob at the end of Genesis speaks about God who has been the shepherd to him all his life. Probably one of the most beloved, all the Psalms, Psalm 23, the Lord is my. And that's a comforting, that's a comforting nuance. You don't read Psalm 23 and go, oh my goodness, the, the concept of shepherding, that's a bad thing here. No. David found it a uniquely fitting metaphor to describe care, love, and guidance. And so it's no surprise then that when you come to look at the Scriptures that those who are responsible for the leadership of the church are called shepherds. That's the form used in Ephesians 4.11. Here it's a command to do the work of shepherds. Do the, so why then this metaphor do you think is so fitting? Well, I want you to think about it. Why is the metaphor for someone in leadership shepherding a church, why, why is that so fitting? This is what I would propose to you. I think when you go to the Bible, you understand that no matter how important your job is, no matter how much money you have, no matter how great your reputation is, no matter how well people think of you, no matter what your moral achievements are, when you go to the Scripture, God actually says we are all like sheep. Sheep. All of us. All of us are that way. Sheep are dependent, are they not? You ever know anything about sheep? If they are going to get food, if they're going to get water, if they're going to get rest, they are completely dependent upon their shepherd to provide that for them. If they hurt themselves, can they heal themselves? Do they pick themselves up and heal a wound? No, that shepherd must attend to that and restore them. And that's the exact imagery you have of David saying God restores his soul, if you remember that. Just like a, a physical shepherd restores the health of a sheep. We're dependent people. We're helpless as sheep are. Sheep are completely helpless, helpless to predators. That's why if you ever to go on YouTube, you don't tend to find things like sheep attacks. They're just not doing that. They're, they're absolutely dependent upon a shepherd to protect them. That is why David says when he's speaking of a word of comfort in Psalm 23, your rod and their, your staff, they what? They don't scare me. They comfort me. The staff used for guidance. Rod used for the protection of the sheep. They're vulnerable. They can be easily led astray. I read a story not too long ago where a whole flock, a whole flock of sheep 
ran off of a hill because they were following a particular sheep. Ran, ran off of the hill. All of them died. They're prone to being led astray. And what happens is that when we go to the Scriptures, what we find is that the Bible says we're like that too. All of us, myself included. We're dependent, we're helpless, we're vulnerable. And in God's great provision, He sees us and says, just like physical sheep need a good physical shepherd, so do my sheep people need a spiritual shepherd over them as well to care for them, to provide for them. But no, look back at verse 2. He says, shepherd the flock of whom? God, it's a stewardship. When I am at my church, I do not look at myself as I own the sheep at Grace Community Church. They belong to me. I have chosen this for myself, and they exist to exercise my will. No, we who understand biblical leadership understand you are an under-shepherd. This is not your flock to do with you as you see fit, to talk to as you would see fit, to respond in anger or hostility as you want to. No, this these people belong to the Lord. You are simply in a position to care for them. By the way, if you were to look at 1 Peter 2.25, God, these two terms are set side by side, shepherd and overseer. God is the shepherd and overseer of our souls. And biblical leadership understands that. So we are under Him, seeking to serve the people. So when you think of what is the task of an elder, a pastor, your answer should be shepherding, caring for the spiritual well-being of the church. And you see that other term, you do that by doing what? Exercising, in this text, oversight. It's where we get the noun form episkopos, episcopal, if you've ever heard of it. You shepherd by looking out over, caring for the well-being of the sheep. This is a serious responsibility. Hebrews 13.17 is actually a call to lay people to submit to the elders. It says, as those, speaking to elders, as those who will give an account for your soul. That matters to me as a pastor. It should matter to any pastor. It is a very serious endeavor whether you are compensated by the church and you do it full time or whether you work partially and for free. Any pastor, any elder, any overseer, all the same function will render an account for those under their care regarding how they care. Let me give you a, another passage that kind of helps set up this task of leadership. Turn over to Acts 20. Look at 28. We're going to go to Acts 20, 28. I've already alluded to this a moment ago. The Apostle Paul calls up the elders at Ephesus to give them a final word. He sees great danger coming to him in the future on his way. And so he wants to warn them. And so you think of all the things he could say to the leadership of the church in a moment when he's very well may never see them again. What is he going to say to these people? What is he going to say? Look at verse 8. This is a word to the leadership of the church. It's what Paul the Apostle says. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the what? To the flock. Same terminology, imagery here. 
in which the Holy Spirit has made you what? Overseers. And what is that overseer to do? To care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. The people, you, those who are saved in your church, in any church that has leadership should recognize that you were purchased at the price of the blood of Christ. Who am I as a leader to lord my position over you? I'm nobody. I'm just an under-shepherd. To care for you as God would care for you. But look at, look at the rest. Verse 29. Why is there such a need for this? I know that after my departure, verse 29, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw the disciples after them. That is why the church needs leadership. To feed them the Word of God. To provide advice and counsel in the ways of life and to protect you from falsehoods and lies and deceits. To protect you from the Spiritual Arminians, if you will, pertaining to my introductory illustration. To, to not look at people where you see people misleading or the new fads of the church or people taking your focus away from the discipleship that is to go into all the world. The leadership protects us. Protects us. So I want to ask you a personal question. What do you desire from your leadership? Do you require somebody who's charismatic? This is incredible personality. Do you require a guy who's a visionary who's going to have a hundred various ministries running the church so you feel like you're a part of a successful church? Whether you have the resources to do it or not. Do you expect him to be in the world of data and technology where you can hear the best speakers that exist in the church, does it got to be that good? What you should expect is a shepherd who cares about your spiritual well-being. That is what the Bible expects. And I find shepherding in churches that the people's expectation of me can be very, very different than what I think God's expectation is of me. So here's my question to you. I want you to think. What is your expectation for Steve at this church? What is your expectation for any future leadership coming into the church? The Bible says it should be to shepherd, to exercise oversight for your spiritual care. Next, consider the motives of elders. Consider the motives. He's reminding them of this great high calling, but he is going to remind them about three primary aspects in this text. And Peter is going to do that by looking at what it is not and contrast it with what that motive should be or what the office should look like. He's going to speak to some internal qualities, but external behavior here. So what is it then if a pastor is responsible for shepherding people What is it that should lead them to that? Look back at your text, verse 3 and following. Beginning to be and following. He says, motive number one, 
You say, gotta have the desire. He says, not under compulsion, but voluntarily or freely, willingly. That means this, that anybody who desires to lead in the office of elder, anybody who desires to lead in the office of elder has to desire it. They gotta want to. They don't do it because they're forced. They don't do it because they're guilty. They don't do it, well, nobody else is gonna step up. I, I, I guess I will do this. No, they desire it. It is a desire that God implants into their heart. But listen to this. Not a desire for ambition. You understand that? Not a desire for respect. Not a desire for alternative selfish means. But First Timothy 1.3 says that they must desire the task, the work of this kind of care. They're not going into it for themselves. They're going into it out of a love for God and a love for His people. You gotta desire it. You want an idea of kind of what, what this terminology means. Philemon, if you remember that, a runaway slave. Paul says, take him back. Paul is given this charge. Look, take back this person. I want you to do it not under compulsion. I want you to do it because you have to. Because you feel guilty if you don't. I want you to do it by your own choice. Because you know it's the right thing to do. And so too with pastors. I promise, I've been in ministry, even though you probably thought a middle schooler was standing up today to present a sermon to you. I'm 33. I've been at the church that I've been a part of for 13 years. been privileged to be there and to be a part of a lot of ministry. And what I realize is this. If you do not desire it for the sake of Christ and out of a love for people, you will not last long at all. At all. You go into it for self-respect, you may not get that. You go into it for the praise of people, might get the opposite of that. You go into it for money, at least at our church, right? You're not going in there for hundreds of thousands of dollars. What, what, what in the world then catapults people to say, take that role? It's a God-given desire out of a love of God and His people to lead. To lead. And they want to do it. Another motive? He says, not for sordid gain, but eagerly. The idea of sordid gain just means, it refers to a, a shameful, greedy desire for monetary gain. Right? Finances. Don't go into the ministry for money. People in leadership have responsibility over finances sometimes, particularly in the early church. And so what you always find when false teachers are identified, they're typically identified always for their love of what? Money. And what do they see the people as a means to? Money. And Peter says there's no place in the household of God for that kind of motivation. You do it by your choice and you do it with a fervency to want to be a part of that kind of ministry. Paul uses the same term in Romans 1.15 when he says, I am eager to come to you. Is that Paul saying to the church at Rome, i got to do it? Well, I guess it's about that time. No, I'm eager to be there. I'm eager. Another motive, and so important for me to hear and all leaders to hear, is not for power, but rather for service. What does he say? Look back at uh, the, the text in front of you. Verse 3, Not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not shameful gain, but eagerly. Verse 3, not domineering or lording over those allotted to you. 
These are people who have been given to you. You don't lord it over them. The, the idea of lording, if you're saying, what is lording? It's the idea of the person in a position of authority who is going to use his position for his own gain. To coerce, to force, to manipulate the people under him. The same exact term of lording is used in Mark 10. Turn over there because it's so important. And no doubt, very possibly, this kind of thought in the back of Peter's mind. As he heard the words of Christ Himself. You remember the, the disciples, a couple of them were talking about who was going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And this is what Jesus says. Jesus says, if you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, make a lot of money. No, He doesn't say that. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, be a charismatic guy. Charismatic leader. Have a credible personality. Now, what he says is this. Look at verse 42. And Jesus called them to Him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. It's the same term used in our text this morning. That's what unbelievers do. And the great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your what? Your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served. Not to lord, not to rule with a high hand, but rather to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So if I, as a leader in my church, are not called to rule over abusively the people under my care to manipulate them for my own ends, what am I to do? Peter says, prove yourself to be an example. And by that, an example of service. Example of service. I'll never forget one of the most impactful things to me as a younger person. I was 20. I was teaching a membership class, and after that membership class, we had a, a lunch after the service on a Sunday. And I'll never forget, it's like 2.30 in the afternoon or so. I'm kind of cleaning up, and I see one of our older elders who's a really wealthy individual. And, and he's 2.30 in the afternoon. I'm like, hey, what, what are you still doing here? I didn't know you were here. Oh, I came back. I'm like, why, why did you come back? And he had a plunger in his hand. Well, I was told that... uh a toilet was stopped up here and I wanted to come in and take care of it. Now that had a profound impact on me. The reason it had an impact is because I'm like looking at this man with all of these business achievements. He has patents. He's really wealthy. You would never know it. You'd never know it. But he is the guy with a plunger unstopping a toilet when nobody else knows. Nobody's going to praise him. Nobody's going to heap thanksgiving upon him. And I talked to him afterwards, later. And I said, I want you to know that impacted me. Because I just saw that it's such a sign of humility to our church. You know what he said? I'll never forget it. He said, Ben, I am not above any task if that task needs to be done. I thought, that's how I want to be. That's how I want to be. So then, elders. Elders don't lord over their people, but rather, what do they do? They serve as an example of humility and some humble service. Lastly, consider the reward of elders. Look at verse 4. He speaks to this hope 
It's not for nothing. Your task and the way in which you've experienced it will come to a conclusion. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You know, he probably could have used a lot of terms for Jesus, couldn't he? Could have called him when the Savior appeared. It would have been appropriate. Why do you think he says chief shepherd? Probably because that's what he's been talking about. He reminds you, the leadership, that you are not the principal leaders. He is. And when he comes, he's coming in glory. He's coming in glory. And you will get the unfading crown of glory. And victors, athletes, they got laurel wreaths or crowns made out of plants. They died, didn't they? But he's saying to these leaders, God has seen every single thing you do. and He'll give you an unfading crown of glory. I'll never forget, I was in my cousin's garage. I was helping him move out stuff. Um, and he had a 19th place chess trophy. And it was broken off halfway through. Tarnished. And I looked at it. I said, like, what are you doing? First, who even keeps 19th place But But it's fallen apart. You can't even read all the writing on it. And I think this is the exact opposite imagery you have here. Elders who are faithfully serving have a crown of glory. They have some kind of reward that will never fade. It will never lessen over time. It will not break. But it's reserved in the sovereign hand of the chief shepherd who has seen every single thing that they've ever done. And he will reward them. So, I want to encourage you this morning that as we consider leadership, remember it is a serious task and it is a great high calling. And it is so high that the great Baptist pastor Charles Spurgeon said that if God calls you to the ministry, never stoop to be a king. It's serious. It matters, but it's also glorious. To see people go from death to life, to see struggling marriages where people hated each other, to repent, to show selflessness, to sit in hospital rooms with people who have lost a loved one, who are broken hearted, and what they don't need in that moment is a word of instruction. They just need somebody to bear their burden with them. There are innumerable benefits that I could recount. Does ministry come with difficulties, heaviness, obstacles? Sure. But it comes with wonderful blessings. But the greatest one is yet to come, and it will come. It will come. I want to give you an encouragement as you think about leadership to make it easy for the leaders to lead you. Make it easy. I'm privileged at our church. The people at our church make it easy to lead them. Make it easy for them. Don't make it a burden. Don't make it difficult. Don't expect them to be like one of the Avengers. As you're going through leadership, I would put upon your minds that who leads matters. Because what matters most in spiritual leadership is not whether they're a businessman. Not whether they have all these incredible abilities, but godliness and character comes before all of those things. So be cautious as to who is put in leadership. That if you were to lead people spiritually, they need to be examples of that spiritual life. I would encourage you to remember that the position of elders aren't more important than the position of deacons or lay people. They're all needed for the glory of Christ to be spread upon this world. I give you a parting thought. 
In the latter part of Ezekiel, uh, the prophets, the, not prophets, the leaders are spoken of as shepherds. But they're spoken of as horrible shepherds. They don't feed the people, they neglect the people. Horrible leaders. And the imagery is you have neglected them to starve, you tear them to pieces. But in Ezekiel it says, one day, one day, a shepherd will come that will not be like those shepherds. And when you understand that prophecy, you understand why John 10 matters so much. You remember Jesus speaking? What does He say? I am the the good shepherd. That's what He says. I know my sheep, and they know me, and I call them out by name. I'm not like a hireling who's going to flee from them to lead them to destruction, but instead I'm going to be among their midst, caring for them and protecting them, so much so that I'll lay my life down for them, and that's exactly what He did. And He then provides us as church leadership the greatest example of what humble service really looks like. If you do not know this shepherd, Jesus Christ, who came to die for you, who was raised from the dead for you, trust in Him today, repent of your sin and turn to Him. He says in John 10, there are still many more sheep that are yet to come into my fold. Is that you today? Is that you? You can repent today and find and experience Him as a good shepherd, or you can wait too late and you will find Him as a judge. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank You for today. We thank You for Your many blessings. We thank You for the great responsibility of leadership that You have cared enough for us to to set aside local churches to have a distinct role for people who are responsible for our care. Lord, I thank You so much for the many men who serve day in and day out with very little thanks, with very little gratitude, who are compelled by a love of You, not for a love of praise and selfish ambition. Would You raise up more and more godly leaders to lead Your flock, not only at Haven Baptist and Grace Community, but all over the world? Would You raise up godly leaders who want to lead out of a love of the work? Out of a love for You and a love for people. In Your name we pray, Amen.